Welcome. Glad you guys are here. As uh, Pastor James said, thanks so much for uh, spending your first Sunday worshiping Jesus here. Appreciate that. And trust that God's going to meet you guys in a unique way. So what I'm going to do real quick, we're going to get into a teaching series that we had begun towards the end of last year before we got into the Advent season of spending time thinking about the birth of Jesus when all that had meant for us. Now we're getting back into that series that we started in what is commonly called as the letter to the Corinthians. So if you guys want, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or I'm sorry, chapter 2. We will get into chapter 1, but mainly chapter 2. Um, and then what I want to do before we jump into that, I want to kind of give a little bit of a summary as to what we had looked at over the past few months prior to taking a break and then get back into it this morning. And I figured it'd be kind of good because for some of us, maybe you are new here, so it'd be good for you to kind of get caught up to speed. Uh, the rest of us, if you've been here for any length of time, you were here during it, completely forgot, just like I completely forgot as well. So, and I've kind of been involved with teaching it. So uh, refreshes are helpful. So I th- what I thought would be kind of good to just kind of go through, is our, is our slides working? Maybe working, maybe, maybe not, maybe. Let's see, here we are. Good, good, good. Um, So I want to go through a quick little summary of what we have gone through. Uh, Paul was writing. There's a guy named Paul. He was a church planner. He was a writer of much of what is commonly known as the New Testament. He would write these letters to churches that he had gone around and planted. So what was a church? A church was a community of people that were committed and faithful and loyal to Jesus. Um, What was unique about this letter that we are reading here right now is this is a community of people that were following Jesus in the midst of a highly paganized city called Corinth. So uh, if you're familiar anything with regard to the ancient city of Corinth, here's a couple of ways to think about this. Uh, Corinth was a cultural hub, uh, not just of the region, but really of the world. So kind of what happened or what got exported from uh, Corinth basically began to shape uh, the rest of the ancient Greco-Roman world. It had led that effort in the world, in the culture of commercialism and arts and athletics, fashion, philosophy, sexuality. Um, all of these things were basically identified or part of kind of the very, very progressive culture of Corinth. And in the midst of that, Jesus had planted a church. There was a community of people that were trying to be faithful to Jesus. Uh, the flip side of that is, on the one hand, you've got all these progressive elements, but as we, as you know, if you've studied anything degree having to do with socialism, or society, I should say, at large, or sociology, you realize the, there's always an underbelly to societies that have tremendous freedom. Um, there's also a dark side of that. In other words, for us to be able to go out and buy your, you know, $5 t-shirt at Urban Outfitters, um, that meant that somebody got paid a very small fee somewhere in some another part of the world that we don't even really think about, and they're living on subsistence, and they're being taken advantage of in some cases. Um, in other words, there's a dark side to that. So a uh, culture that might flourish in sexuality also has a tendency to flourish in the exploitation of that. We call that pornography or sex trafficking. And this is exactly what was happening in the dark side of Corinth as well. So there's villainy and slavery and deviance and criminality and all these other types of elements that were part of that. Um, before we jump into kind of reading that, I'm going to have, if you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? We have the ushers that have been so patient and so awesome. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. They'd be happy to get you a Bible, and you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as well. Um, but that being said, is that what we see that the believers in Corinth, they were under continual threat of becoming like the broader culture around them. Um, and this is the constant tension. So on the one hand, here's this community of people that are really trying hard to be faithful to Jesus in the midst of this culture uh, that is highly propagandized by the paganistic philosophy around them that 
brokers in power and philosophy and sexuality and freedom and doing all these types of things. That would be part of the uh, culture there in Corinth. Um, but one of the areas that we see specifically that the church in Corinth, that the whole letter of Corinthians is all about, is Paul's writing to this community of people to be faithful to Jesus, to not allow the broader, wider culture around them in which they're situated to have influence over them. And that's really, to be honest with you, our, our tension here right now. Like, we love slow. We love the Central Coast. We move here because we love it, most of us. You know, most of us have come here or chose to school here or got a job here or chose to take a job here. Because at some, some place, we, we love to sit here. But at the same time, there's also dark elements of the Central Coast that are not in line with the heart and the mind of, of God. And the big question is, are we aware of that? Are you aware of the influences that are around you that are constantly trying to combat the actual very nature and essence of the gospel itself. And so one of those areas that we see within the Corinthian community is we see that they struggled. And the word that actually gets utilized within the letter to the Corinthians is called scandalized. They were actually scandalized by elements of the nature of the gospel, the good news. So, for example, um, that in Greco-Roman culture, they valued, highly valued, um, both strength as well as uh, intellect or philosophy in that context. So you can think of the great ancient philosophical you know, teachers like Plato or Aristotle or Socrates, Socrates, of course, um, in this ancient world. And these guys were geniuses, and they had highly influenced much of that ancient world. And so philosophy was very high on the prioritized list, as well as strength. So if you can think of uh, an ancient Roman soldier, right? Gladiator, powerful, bravado, strength, testosterone, spear, right? Think of all these things that would kind of epitomize macho culture, right? That was Roman culture, Roman civilization. So it's both strength and philosophy. And so here you have uh, Christianity being founded and coming into this culture that values strength and values philosophy um, through a, you know, a, a, a no-name Jewish peasant who barely can keep a job down, talking about a Jewish Messiah who's come to save people that dies on a cross. You realize how ridiculous that is? It should be ridiculous. If it doesn't sound ridiculous to you, it's because maybe we're not aware of the cultural elements that are at play. So this is what was happening here. The, the, the gospel message that Paul was preaching was utterly ridiculous to the broader culture around him. Paul's not backing down. He's not apologizing for it. He's stepping into it and acknowledging the fact that this is what it is. It is this way. And what we have is an option to either allow the broader culture around us to continue to fuel our thinking and to propagandize our mind, our intellect, and our emotions, and our feelings, and our desires, and allow us to continue to go astray from the message of the gospel, or we could stand in defiance against the broader culture and the propagandized version of the story that it keeps telling us, and stand against that in resistance against that, not in violent resistance, but in humble resistance, just like Jesus did, and just say, we're not going to go there. We, we will not be swayed or manipulated or maligned or pushed into a way of denying the very message that, that rescued us. So again, when you think about the very essence of the gospel, it's the story of a, of a Jewish man who, through death and infamy and destruction and utter abandonment, becomes the means by which salvation happens. Now again, in a culture that, that 
that values gladiatorial strength and might. You realize how ridiculous that message sounds. So next slide. Um, there is a commentator that says this. His name is Stephen. He says, here is the ultimate scandal. In Christ, the God of the universe submits himself to our cultural storyline in all its brokenness. Let's pause and think about that just for a moment, just to consider this. So I want to talk a little bit about different types of wisdom. So on the one hand, you got conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom is just basically the standard fare by which society and culture basically either by way of written agreement or by way of verbal agreement or oral agreement just kind of come to the assumption of certain characteristic ideas. So for example, in the ancient culture, you have kind of this conventional wisdom that uh, gods are to be served. You're to give sacrifices to them. You're to get yourself cleaned up and taken care of and sanitized before you go to the gods. What the wisdom that the Bible teaches and what the wisdom that Paul promotes, I like to call it punk rock wisdom, right, or unconventional wisdom, or Jesus wisdom, however you want to think of it, unconventional, Christ-centered, punk rock wisdom is this wisdom that bucks the traditional, conventional wisdom and says, no, there's a different wisdom that's at play that you need to know about. And so the idea that says that conventional wisdom says that people serve God, but what the gospel says, no, actually what we have is a God that comes into humanity and serves people. Uh, conventional wisdom says people clean themselves up and approach God. What we see, the punk rock wisdom of God says, no, God actually soils himself as he steps into our brokenness in order to rescue us. It's a radically, what Tim Keller describes as a radically upside down gospel. Totally upside down gospel. It's, it, it, it sets the entire world in an entirely different posture. And, and this is why it's scandalous. Again, uh, this is why the concept of the storyline of a savior who is brutalized and bloodied and abandoned on a Roman cross outside of a city as an enemy of the state. Now, again, when we think of cross, we'll get more into this in just a moment, but we tend to think of, like, um, jewelry, or something that looks nice on somebody. And we, you know, this cross is ordained with, you know, a diamond. And this cross is ordained with a human being on it. And this, you know, I mean, we think of some degree of, like, beauty and art and whatnot. But in the ancient world, the concept of a cross was something you just didn't talk about, ever. It was just, it was forbidden discussion. It was, it was the most grotesque form of death and murder and execution. So, and it was, it was not a foreign construct or foreign concept. It was, it was very ubiquitous throughout the Roman Empire. So in other words, it would not have been uncommon for you to go for you know, a stroll with your family, like just cruising around through town and be like, oh, look, there's a falafel stop and there's like Turkish coffee and oh, there's another human being hanging across, rotting in the open sun, flies all around it and a bird standing on top of its head pecking out its eyeball. And that mentality of like, oh my gosh, it's utterly disgusting. Your kids are going to look away, and mom, what'd that guy do? Like, that whole mentality was utterly abhorrent. And Paul's saying, this is where salvation came from, guys. A God that entered into our world in a way that should shake and rattle your life and should even cause you to think, this is scandalous. Once you begin to see it as scandalous, now you're beginning to catch the picture. If it's not scandalous to you, it's very possible what you've done is you've created a catered, sanitized version of the gospel that really, at the end of the day, cannot save you. 
It can just maybe give you some therapy. It can make you feel good about yourself and give you some degree of a promise of a future and a hope. But it is, it is a, a Christianity without a cross. And the whole big idea that Paul's saying is that that is basically a Christianity devoid of its power and ability to rescue. So with that being said, Paul's main concern for these people is that they don't lose sight of the message. Just like you and I, we are constantly in danger of losing sight of the message. We are constantly, just like the people in Corinth, feeling this pressure, this tension of like, i got to apologize for what the Bible says because it's so weird and so outdated and so like obtuse and so just doesn't fit and doesn't conform. Right, don't apologize for that. That's punk rock wisdom. Do you understand that? That's punk rock wisdom. It is non-conventional wisdom. It is the wisdom of God. We shouldn't apologize for that. But here's where the story goes. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read the passage that we're going to be kind of focusing on right now. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. So why don't you guys, how about we all stand? Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read. You can follow along. It's up on the screen. And I'm going to pray, and then we will get to work looking at what this passage has to speak to us this morning. Paul writes, and he says, And I... When I came to you, brothers, that word brothers in many of our translations, can, it's a gender-neutral term that can mean brethren, male, female, brothers and sisters. I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of God. Jesus, we ask you right now that you would speak to our hearts. God, I pray that you would help just the, the gospel, the reality of the good news, um, as nonconformist it is to our culture. Help us to not be shocked by that not be dismayed by that, but to come to just simply expect it is what it is, to embrace it for what it is, to submit our hearts entirely to you, Jesus, as our king for who you are. So we commit this time in your hands. Have your way, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all grab a seat. So we're going to look at basically three things here this morning. I'll go through them real quick, and then we'll kind of go back and look at each one of them. So Paul is going to be describing how he came to them, and before we jump in, Next slide. I just really want to pause and meditate upon this one simple reality. In fact, I would even go so far as to say this is actually the very essence of the gospel. It's this one little phrase. Paul says, and I came to you. Um, the whole bigger idea, this is, this is the gospel, just a really simple phrase. God coming to us. In this case, why did Paul go out to these people? It's because God came to him. This is the essence of the gospel. Um, you can kind of reverse engineer this and begin to think of this in different ways. This is the opposite of God saying, I abandon you. This is not God saying, I bailed on you. This is not God saying, you're scandalous. Your actions, your activities, your heart, your attitude, it's all scandalous to me. I'm out of here. This is not God bailing on humanity and going and creating a whole new thing in some other distant foreign you know, universe. This is God saying, and I came to you. I came to you. I came to you. This is such good news. And what this tells us, it reminds us that at the very core of the gospel is about a message that involves not us kind of 
building it and they will come, which is kind of what happened over the years of Christian history, is that um, during, and you're going to follow a little bit of the Roman uh, history, you realize that during our 300s, Christianity made, made a major change, that things became about building these big buildings and big architecture and whatnot, and Christianity became kind of a spectator sport, where you would go and show up. And even in today's culture, we have these various versions of it, where it's like, um, let's create the most spectacular, incredible, amazing service or that, that will titillate and cause people to be amazed and stunned and, and you know, uh, by the show. And the idea is kind of attractional. Like, let's create something really big and awesome and attractive so that people will then come to us and maybe they will be saved. It was kind of the version of this back when I became a Christian in the late 80s or mid-80s, late 80s and early 90s and whatnot. It was this idea to say, let's make Jesus look really cool. Remember that? So you had like Christian music. It was like, you know, every secular musician had kind of like their counterpart to a Christian musician. It's straight up cringeworthy, right? The point of the matter is, what I want to say is that there's this emphasis to try to make Jesus cool. And what Paul is saying is that no, it's not about making Jesus cool. It's about just recognizing there's a power in the name of Jesus. And really at the heart of the gospel is not this attractional reality, but rally, rather what I would describe or what other theologians would describe as incarnational, meaning you step into another person's world. You go to where there's suffering, where there's hurt, where there's trauma, where there's pain, where there's sorrow. You step into that. And that's ignominious. That's, that doesn't get you brownie points. It doesn't make you popular. It's not Instagram worthy, okay? The point of the matter is, is it looks horrible, but that's where salvation takes place. This is what we see God stepping into our world, him taking upon himself human flesh as a baby. Like we just came off of Christmas celebrating, remembering God come into the world in the form of a baby who was required to drink mother's milk, who soiled himself. That this was, this, was, this was God in human flesh, in the mess, in the griminess of our lives. But this is where true salvation happens, is when somebody from the outside decides to step in. And I'll pause for us to just think about this. Who are the people in our lives that God's called us to be a part of, to invest our lives in, who are those that we know? It might be a neighbor, someone, I, I mean, like physical neighbor, like you know, three doors down from you, or somebody that you know within your world that you know through work or through school or whatever. It might even be an actual family member. But who are people in your life that God has placed in your life so that you can step into their situation, coming to them just like Paul had come to the Corinthians, just like God had come to humanity? This is what the gospel is really all about. It's being incarnational, being very intentional about stepping into another person's mess in order to show them life. This is what Paul did. This is what Jesus did. This is what, pause to remember, what we're constantly called to be invited into, to consider, to think about. So what I want to do right now is I want to really just take a look at a couple different things. Three things. Number one, Paul says, when I came to you, um, we see that Paul came with a specific message. Paul came with a specific method. And then Paul also came with a specific motivation. And I want to take a look at each one of these three, and we'll kind of wrap it up. So number one, what was the message that Paul came to them proclaiming? Paul is very clear about this in the first two verses that we just read. And then we'll kind of dovetail back a little bit into chapter one and make some notes. So number one, Paul says, I came to you. 
proclaiming the testimony of God. So number one, whatever it is that Paul says I came proclaiming to you, it was not his necessarily opinions or his ideas or even testimony about himself. Paul did not come boasting about his exploits and his ability and his background and his incredible you know, letters after his name. Paul says, I came to you to simply proclaiming to you the testimony of God. There's nothing wrong with telling your testimony, your story about your life, but the question at some point has to be asked, you know, what's the main emphasis? What's the main focal point? Is it our lives? Is it what we've gone through? Or is it Jesus? Paul's saying, look, I've gone through a lot of stuff, but really at the end of the day, the message I came to you proclaiming is the testimony, the witness of what God has done. Secondly, we see in verse 2, he says, uh, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the message becomes a little bit more fine-tuned. That's the testimony of God. It's kind of synonymous with the phrase it describes as Christ Jesus and him crucified. So whatever the message is that Paul is communicating, it has something very distinct about the fact that Jesus died. So whatever it is that Paul is preaching has to do with Jesus' death. 1 Corinthians chapter 28, verse 30, he is going backwards. Uh, he says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God. What Paul is reminding those people uh, to whom he has come to, and again, like, like I said, in Corinth, these are the, the best-looking, Instagram-worthy human beings on planet Earth, right? They're in Corinth. They're good-looking. They're all wearing Lululemon. They're all really just hotties, right? They're the people that you would look at and like, I aspire to be that person. Like, Paul's like, look, God didn't choose you because you look good in a bathing suit. God didn't choose you because you look awesome on Instagram or because you have all sorts of followers. That's not why God chose you. He chose you for a whole other entirely different reason. And he describes, not many of you are wise or powerful or strong. He didn't choose you because you went to college. He didn't choose you because you got a great job. He didn't choose you because you got a nice car. He didn't choose you because of anything you have done for yourself. He's chosen you because he loves you. Do you realize the message? We need to hear that today because many of us, especially within the weird, odd world which we live in today that is so ready to just post everything about our lives on social media, do you realize there's a dark side to that? And that dark side is like, Oh my gosh, I didn't get likes, and am I not loved? Am I not liked? What do I got to do now, next, to somehow get more hits of dopamine in my brain so I can feel that I'm wanted? At some point, that becomes a zombie-like existence that just keeps eating off of you, devouring you. And the gospel is, you can, you can lay that aside. You can stop that. Because you, for who you are now, whether you fit in your bathing suit or you look abhorrent according to your own perspective, you are loved. And you will never be abandoned by a God who's given himself to you. Do you realize the message that that is that's in radical contrast to the world in which we live in today? One is liberating, freeing. One is anxiety-producing. It just creates this loop of feedback and brokenness and anxiety and pain and sorrow. And we can be free from it right now. Like right now, you can be set free from that feedback cycle. And what he's saying is that all of this, God didn't choose all of you guys because of anything other than it's about the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom of God. What is the wisdom of God? The wisdom of God is the testimony of God. The testimony of God is about Christ and him crucified. 
So God stepping into our world, into our brokenness, into our ruin, to do something about that. How? By taking it upon himself, the entirety of it. The shame, the abandonment, the feeling of never adding up, never measuring up, the constant uh, brokenness, all of this God takes upon himself and allows it to do to him what it constantly does to you and I. But even to a, a far more realistic sense, it begins to consume him to his core. And this is what we see, Jesus dying on the cross. But we know the end of the story because it's not all sad because at the end of the day, Jesus rises again from the dead and God invites us into a whole new life. And this is Paul's whole point. So it's not just simply crucifixion, but it's crucifixion that precedes or precipitates resurrection. And this is what Paul sings the good news, that God has not abandoned you. He has not bailed on you. He stepped into your sorrow, your brokenness, your baggage, your messed up life and the consequences of things that have been done against you and the consequences of things that you've done against other people and the multiplication and the compounding of all of these things. God has taken them upon and into himself and allowed them to do their worst and came out the other end and invites us to be a new human being that shares in that new life that God offers. Sound ridiculous? I have no apology for you. This is the story that we are given. This is the story that I do my best to try to communicate. This is the story that we are either called or invited to say, I believe it, and I give my life to it, or we have to find some other parody of a story to give ourselves over to, because we as human beings, we must live for some stories. One of the reasons why we're constantly giving ourselves to some other narrative in this life, but the invitation for us is to trust the story that God tells us here in the New Testament. So what I want to do is I want to move on from this larger thing. So in short, we can think of it this way. That next slide. Uh, here's a couple of the passages to chew on and think about. First Corinthians chapter 2, verses... Uh, you know, sorry, I'm going to go back here. I guess I don't have the passage for it. So just listen up real quickly. Acts chapter 4, verse 11 says this. And Jesus, this Jesus, there is salvation in no one else, is what the writers in the book of Acts describe. Acts chapter 2, verse 21, it says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, it's Jesus, will be saved. So again, if you want to think about the message, what was the message that Paul preached? Um, if you want a simple way to just remember it, it's one word. Uh, you can elaborate it, you can riff off of it, you can make it bigger, smaller, expand it. But the simple nugget of it all, the simple seed of it is Jesus. Jesus, God is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. God stepped into your mess for one aim only, to bring about your healing, your wholeness, your salvation. This was God's aim. This is the message that Paul preached. So some of us, we might think about the idea of like actually going into the lives of other people. We're like, I don't really know what to say. I don't really know the Bible that well. I'm not really even sure about theology and biblical words. You don't need to know about all that stuff. Are you really, I mean, at some point, it's great to learn and grow. And I'm a Bible nerd, and I love reading stuff about the Bible and reading books. And my most favorite thing to do is to read footnotes in big books. And that's like my number one major happy place is that. But you don't need to know all that. I mean, it's as great as it is. At the end of the day, the most important lesson you need to learn and know is just Jesus, Jesus, God of salvation. Call upon his name. You'll be saved. Now, someone pause and just think about this in a moment and say, that seems very, very exclusive. He's saying there's no salvation in any other name. And again, this is where we go back to the simple reality is that we shouldn't apologize about that. Like, it's, it's a claim. It's a claim that says every other 
human being or institution has a claim that if you give yourself to it, it will give you something in return. That's what the porn industry is all about. Give yourself unreservedly to us and we will give you pleasure and delight. What they don't tell you is a small print is that in doing that, you will desensitize yourself to sex and sexuality. You will begin to look at other human beings that are made in the image of God as somehow subhuman and you will begin to ruin your own life. They don't tell you that. It's one of the reasons why sex keeps having to get ramped up. You need something greater and higher and more of a hit, more of a, a profound impulse that just gets surged throughout your body. But they, they don't tell you that at the end of the day. We give ourselves to something. The question is, what are you giving yourself to? What are you giving yourself to? What story, what narrative are you buying into? What story, what narrative are you saying, I'm going to be loyal to that? We are all loyal to something. question that you need to just pause and think about is what, am, what narrative or story am I being loyal to in devoting my energy, my thoughts, my mind to? At some point, you've got to ask the bigger question, where does that story, that narrative lead to? And then begin to reverse engineer your life backwards. Say, will that give me life? Will that give me Hope and healing, will that give me some degree of knowledge of how to treat other people with humanity and dignity and value and love? Um, and will it give me a future and a hope? Will it help me in the midst of suffering and pain and loss? This is, these are all the things that the gospel provides and offers. And so, number one, Paul's message was Jesus. Secondly, we'll take a look at the method that Paul utilizes, or that Paul taps into, or that basically, if you want to think of it this way, that God uses uh, with Paul in his hand, the method. Just listen to the passage. I'm going to read this to you, and you can, we'll, we'll backtrack and kind of uh, unpack this a little bit. But listen what he goes on to say. Um, Acts chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, he says this. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So I want to go through these real quickly. Uh, next slide, we'll kind of just knock these out a little bit, pause on fear, we'll have a fun little intermission, we'll come back. Uh, But number one, he describes the word weakness. The word that he uses there um, actually has an English counterpart, uh, asthenia is, I think, the way they pronounce it, Um, basically means physical weakness or lack of energy, so I guess there's an actual English medical term that describes that. It's almost the exact same Greek word that's used there. Paul's saying, when I was with you, I I was with you in weakness. I physically felt tired, I physically felt fatigued. And then it goes on to say, and I was also with you in fear. We get the English word uh, phobia. It's the word, Greek word phobos. Uh, again, it's, it refers to anxiety or worry or fear, things that can oftentimes be irrational. Paul says, when I was with you, I was physically weak and maladjusted around the circumstances of your day. And not only that, I had deep anxiety, which I was dealing with. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to do a little bit of an intermission and just play a little game called Name that fear. So here we go. We'll come back to this. Uh, so you guys ready for this game? Intermission, right? So here's a couple ones. Aerophobia. Let's, let's see how, how good you guys are. Aerophobia, what? What is that? Fear of flying, right? Good job. That's kind of an easy one. All right, here's, here's another one. Um, not, not, not to downplay your intellect. You guys are all really smart and educated and good looking. But here's, an, here's another one. Uh, I don't, I'm not ex- exactly certain how to even pronounce it. So if I mispronounce this, uh, there you go. You get what you pay for. Uh, electorophobia. Um, anybody know what this is? Elect, electorophobia. What's that? Fear of jeopardy? No. Good, close. Very, very close. Very close. Anyone else? Someone said fear of election. Did you say that? Fear of election. Someone said that first service, so you guys are on the same track. Fear of elections. Nope, that's totally not right either. Anyone else? It's 
Fear of electricity. Oh, that's a good one. Good guesses. I don't know how you get this out of there, but apparently it's fear of chicken. Fear of chickens. So if you've ever been around chickens and you have this like, anxiety, you're like, oh my gosh, it's going to peck me. Like, you apparently have that. All right, that's you. So you, get, you can get therapy. It's all good. Um, here's another one. Uh, kinemortophobia. Kinemortophobia. Anybody know what this is? Fear of exercise. <laughs> fear of exercise. Anybody have fear of exercise? No, okay. Uh, anybody? Guesses? Fear of zombies. Yes, you got it. Good job. Who said that? Yes, good job. Fear of zombies. All right. So if you ever have this like panic in the middle of the night, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be devoured by a zombie. You apparently have that. Uh, so here's another one. Autophobia. Autophobia. Fear of self. Yeah, good. Fear of driving. Close. Good. Uh, actually, it is the fear of abandonment. Fear of abandonment. Fear of having someone in your life and just bail on you and being all alone. And this is where we kind of segue back into the message. There's no doubt, I would imagine, Paul probably felt to some degree moments this. Because and this is what we see with regard to, let's get out of here. So <laughs> eyes here, guys, come on. Uh, the point of the matter is, is it, here's Paul. Um, if you read in the story of Acts, Acts chapter 17 and 18, what Paul's doing is on this missionary journey. And within some of these contexts, Paul actually gets thrown in jail. So imagine Paul being put in prison and he is supposed to be somebody that is proclaiming the message of Jesus, salvation. And here he is in jail, uh, proclaiming healing. And here he is sick. So the question is, like, uh, there are moments where even in Paul's writings, he's writing to these people saying, look, they abandoned me. They bailed on me. They left me. They're utterly embarrassed about me because here I am in prison. Paul understood this. He got this. And maybe there's to some degree of this happening within Paul's life of feeling this anxiety. And then he goes on to say, not only was I with you in weakness and fear, the word much trembling, the Greek word that there is tremos. We get the English word, um, trauma. So here's Paul saying, I was with you in sickness, fear, trauma, traumatized by circumstances. And then Paul goes on to add to this. He says, and my words that I communicated to you, the gospel, right, the testimony of God, the resurrection and the death of Jesus, all of these things, Paul's saying that I didn't come to you communicating these things in pythos. We, we get the English word pithy, right? Paul's like, I didn't come to you with Twitter-worthy like, message, right? You can just 140 characters that you can just easily post up. Paul's like, I did not come to you with nice, quick, little pithy statements that you can put on your coffee mug or on your T-shirt, Paul's like, I came to you. Now, here's, here's the interesting irony with Paul. Paul was extraordinarily smart and wise and very intellectual. Paul was raised in a very unique background where not only from a Greco-Roman worldview empire, he was extremely smart. Paul's like quoting all these crazy poets um, in certain portions of his writings. The way that Paul writes certain books are just like are masterpieces of art. Paul is a very, very articulate and smart guy. But Paul saying, when I came to you, I calmed myself. I didn't just put everything on blast for you. I didn't somehow come to you to try to impress you. I didn't come to you to try to make you in awe of me. Paul says, I could have done that. I didn't come to do that. I came so that as I preached, not in pithy, pithy statements, so that you, even in spite of my weakness and anxiety, and trauma that I've experienced that God would be made much of. Because then he goes on to say, and I did this within the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, that little phrase, like, I thought it would be interesting, just kind of like, what, what does Paul mean by spirit of 
demonstration of the Spirit and the power. And again, this is kind of led all sorts of theological uh, uh, assumptions and theologians trying to understand, was Paul doing miracles? And what was this a reference to, a demonstration of power? Was this like incredible um, uh, people come to meet Jesus? Like what was going on here? And I thought it'd just be best to let the scripture kind of interpret itself. So uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it tells us a little bit about Jesus who had almost an identical um, phrase get applied to him. It says, as God anointed Jesus, so Jesus is anointed by God um, with the Holy Spirit and power. So it's our phrase. And he went about, is where it begins to define for us, it fleshes out for us, what does it mean to live following God in demonstration of Holy Spirit power? What does that mean? What does it look like? Well, here's what he says. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Uh, God was with him. <laughs> so if you're ever like wondering, like, how do I live a powerful life, you know, in league with the Holy Spirit? Want to know how? Just like this. Do good. Do good deeds. God bless you. And Help those that are oppressed by the evil one. Do good and help those that are oppressed by the evil one. You say, well, I just go through the rest, all of my entire life, just focused on myself and trying to figure out how to get through. Well, then it's likely you're not, you're, you're not and again, there's just no guilt or judgment or condemnation, heat the bunny. I'm just trying to like point out the obvious. It's, it's the opposite of, of living with spirit power and demonstration. And it's what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, it's going to sound kind of really odd, but Jesus' followers follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus into those places of brokenness and hurt and pain and sorrow to do good and to do the best that we can to help alleviate pain and suffering, whether it be paying for people, whether it be giving money so that someone can pay for their rent or buying them a meal or Giving some money so they can go buy shoes for their kids. or I mean, we look for ways. We ask the big question, where are the places of sorrow and suffering right now in our incredibly paradisical place we call San Luis Obispo? Where are the places of suffering? They exist. Do you know where they're at? Have you been there? Have you seen them? Have you felt them? They exist. It might be in your home. It might be in your neighbor's home. They exist. And those are the very spots where God wants to come and break in and begin to show forth his greatness. And again, he doesn't do this because we are devoid of any form of dysfunctionality or brokenness or pain. Here's an interesting twist on all of this. Again, conventional wisdom would say to us, and it consistently says to us, like if you're broken and you're weak, we gotta get you strong. If you're traumatized, we gotta get you therapy. If you're going through hard, hard stuff, we gotta get you well so that then you can become effective. Now, I'm all for therapy. I'm all for you getting counseling. I'm all for you having someone that you can sit down and chat with and talk Bible with and be healed and set free from the things and the maladies that hold you down. I'm all for that. But the point that I'm making is that there's this, this conventional wisdom that says until that happens, you're going to be ineffective. And what I'm suggesting to you is the exact opposite. Is in the midst of your traumatized state and weakness and anxieties, that oftentimes God may want to break through and harness those things for the purposes of his kingdom. You say, I feel weak. That's the point, is that God chooses the weak things of the world to confound, to baffle the strong. God chooses the stupid ones of the world. The word that's actually used is the, the foolish ones, the morons. God uses the morons of the world to baffle those who have, you know, six degrees behind their name. That, that's God's point. So at the end of the day, 
people will step back and realize, my goodness, God is powerful because he used a really broken, dysfunctional human being. And this is the whole point of the gospel. God breaks into our brokenness and brings forth life. So I don't know how this speaks to you or what types of challenges or hardships or dysfunctionalities or brokenness or anxieties or weaknesses or even traumas that you are right now processing and thinking through and working through, which, again, conventional wisdom says you're ineffective until that stuff's all taken care of. Punk rock wisdom says that's right where God is going to use you as you live in saying yes in agreement to him. God will take those things and make beauty out of it. This is what Paul's saying. When I came to you, this is how God used me. I came not the epitome of power and wisdom and incredibleness. In fact, quite the opposite. And what God did through my life was to bring forth something alive in the Holy Spirit in this community that's consistently standing against the cultural influences and propaganda of the world at large around it that's trying to bring in decay and discrepancy and brokenness. So Paul's whole point is like stand against that, but just remember the very beginning of where all this started was God broke in. God broke in. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. I don't know how you think about religion or Christianity or whatever. My hope would be that you would just strip all the garbage and trash and concepts and, you know, organizational, like, morass and chaos and brokenness and oppression that you've seen and just get back to the very simplistic seed of it all, which is Jesus, Christ and him crucified. The essence of the gospel is God loves you and he steps into your brokenness to do something about it. Paul says at the very end, I'm going to wrap it up with a final couple of thoughts. When he describes, uh, next slide, um, 2 Corinthians, a famous passage that lots of you guys, I'm sure, are aware of. He says, as Jesus said to me, it says, backstory, Paul had something that was going on with him. Nobody really knows. All these scholars have thoughts and suspicions, but nobody really knows exactly. But Paul had some sort of malady that he dealt with. He describes it as my thorn in the flesh. And so Paul uh, does with this thorn in flesh what we often have to do with our thorn in flesh. We, We pray about it. We're like, God, take this thing away from me. And Paul prayed. He says, I prayed three times that God would take this thorn in the flesh away from me. And then God comes to him and speaks to him. Here's what he says. Jesus then said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. <laughs> it's like God's like, you know, around the, uh, around the bush way of saying, I'm not going to take it away, but in the midst of it, I'm going to give you strength to endure with it, to deal with it. And then he goes on to say, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. There's that word, weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that in the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with Weaknesses. Just pause on that phrasing, but that content with weaknesses. Can you say that? I can't. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying, like, that's a hard one to say. I'm super content with my weakness. Hey, how's life? Ah, oh, super content with just being a weakling. It's all good. Like, I got a lot of trauma, a lot of baggage, but I'm super content with it all. Like, like the point of the matter is, again, it's not saying I'm content with weaknesses. It's that I'm content with Jesus in the midst of the presence of weaknesses, which is really the absence of strength. He's like, I'm, I'm content in the midst of this. How can Paul say this? Because he goes on to say, uh, 
and I'm content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Why could Paul say this? Because remember, Jesus' people follow Jesus. Paul was following Jesus who was weak and insulted and endured hardships and was persecuted and suffered calamities and came out the other end. Remember that thing three days after the crucifixion, the resurrection? Paul says, That's, I'm following Jesus in crucified state, but out the crucified state into a resurrection state. So I have a hope in a future that God, who's with me in my sorrow and weakness and pain and anxiety and trauma, is also going to get me through to the other side and I have a future and a hope that I'm holding on to. So finally, I want to end with this final thought, which is Paul's uh, motivation. What was Paul aiming at in all of this? Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's like, look, I, I realize I can preach an incredibly articulate, verbose message for you that will cause you to walk away and be like, oh my gosh, Paul's incredible. He's such a good speaker. Paul's like, I realize I can do that, but then you'll be boasting in me. Paul's like, I don't want that. I want you to be boasting in Jesus. So God has this way of, of choosing really broken, dysfunctional, messed up, traumatized, sorrowful, hardship functioning people, and God uses these so that at the end of the day, Jesus can be made much of. Because Paul says, I want people to have their faith and confidence in the power of God. And to rest on this final quote, um, many New Testament writers quote a variation of this. I'm just going to go right straight to the source of the book of Jeremiah and end on this. In fact, as I'm finishing on this, how about how the worship team come on up and they will lead us into a song of worship to close. Um, but listen to what Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 23 says. For says the Lord, let's pause with this phrase, anytime you read a Bible verse that says, thus says the Lord, stop, listen. This is the king speaking. What does the king have to say? Thus says the Lord, do not let the wise man boast in his wisdom. Do not let the mighty boast in his might. Let not the rich boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness throughout all the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is the invitation for us by way of ultimately orienting our lives back to recognizing Jesus as king. Now again, I realize for some of us, you may call yourself a follower of Jesus. Um, and so the idea is really asking bigger questions. Is Jesus ultimately the one who is shaping your life or is culture shaping your life? Uh, the, the bigger propagandized state, is that what's shaping your life or is it King Jesus? Because we're all in danger. We live in an incredibly persuasive culture that makes persuasive arguments that really at the end of the day, it's conventional wisdom that's in conflict with punk rock Christ wisdom. And we're always in danger of being seduced by the wrong story. For some of you, you might not be a follower of Jesus and you're just trying to make sense of this. My thought for you to consider is that all of us follow something, some storyline, some narrative we give our devotion to. We submit our hearts over to, our loyalties to, our money to, our, our time, our energy, our devotion to. The question is, is that storyline or narrative or concept or construct or idea or ideology, does it have a timestamp on it? That some point it will expire. When it expires, you'll be left empty and broken. It will fail you. It will fail you. Jesus will 
never fail you. That's what he says. I practice steadfast love. You know, you know what steadfast love is? It's love that never, ever, ever fails you, no matter how much you failed God. It won't let you go because he loves you. So the invitation for us is to pause, reflect, to worship. So how about we all stand? If you're here and you need prayer, as we come to the table and eat the bread and drink the cup, we're reminded that all of us are invited. Jesus loves us. He invites us to trust him, to give ourselves over to him, to devote our lives and our loyalties over to him. If there's situations at all in your life you just need prayer for, we'll have some people over off by this cross over the side over here that would love to pray for you. Again, no matter what type of circumstance you're going through, if you just need some more encouragement from Jesus, we want to pray for you. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Let me pray right now. Let's respond by way of song and communion and prayer. Jesus, thank you for your great love. We submit ourselves over to you right now as our King.